And, uh, oops, we both hit simultaneously. Um, in John chapter 21, you find one of my favourite stories uh, about God's grace. Uh, it's, it occurs at the end of John's Gospel, which is one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus that we have in the New Testament. And uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's about to ascend back to his Father in heaven. Um, but John 21 describes some of the appearances that Jesus makes after his resurrections to his disciples. And the part of the, the story that I particularly love is the story of when Jesus appears to seven of his apostles. Um, they've gone back to Galilee, which is where most of them were from, and uh, they've decided to go out fishing together. And so these seven guys have gotten a boat, and they've headed out, and they have fished all through the night, and they've caught nothing, which I think is a biblical expression of the fact that we shouldn't even bother fishing, basically. But anyway, they've been out there fishing all night, caught nothing, and then as the sun is just starting to come up over the hills, they see a man uh, standing on the shoreline. He's got a fire going and so on, and he calls out to them, have you caught any fish? And they're like, nah. And he said, try your nets on the other side of the boat. It's Jesus, obviously, but they haven't recognized him yet, so they throw their nets the other side of the boat, and they have this massive, miraculous amount of fish just kind of jumping into the nets that they're almost breaking. And it's John, one of the seven who have gone fishing. It's John who recognizes that's Jesus. And he turns to Peter and he says, hey, it's Jesus. And Peter puts his cloak back on because it kind of stripped down a little bit to do the fishing. And he dives in and he swims to shore and the rest of them come ashore. And Jesus has got a fire going and some bread and some fish. And he says, hey, bring some of your fish. And together they have breakfast. And then it's what happens after breakfast that I particularly love. It seems as though Jesus invites Peter to go for a little walk down the beach because the two of them are walking and talking together. The last time that they were together around a fire was a few weeks before when Jesus had been on trial for his life um, and he would be crucified the next day. In that particular instance, uh, Peter had been in a courtyard waiting to see what would happen to Jesus. And he had proclaimed that very night that he would not fall away, and Jesus had predicted that someone was going to betray him, and the rest of the disciples would run. And, and Peter had quite arrogantly said, not me, God. Everyone else may run, but I'll, I'll stay with you to the end. And Jesus had said, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter was adamant that he wouldn't, but sure enough, uh, he, he does. He denies he knows Jesus while he's sitting around this campfire. And one of the Gospels tell us that at the very moment he he denies he knows Jesus for the third time, and the rooster crows. Jesus is being led from one room to another one in the palace, and he's walking through the courtyard at that very moment, and he looks over at Peter right then. That was the last time, as far as we know, Peter and Jesus are gathered around a campfire until this particular morning in John 21, after the resurrection. And so they're sitting around a campfire again, and you can't help wondering whether Peter's thinking about that earlier incident and the mess that he made and the way he denied Jesus. But Jesus seems to invite him to come for a walk. And he says, Simon, which is Peter's original name, says, Simon, do you love me more than these? Because that had been Peter's claim. You know, arrogantly, I'm, even if everyone else falls away, I'll, I'll, I'll stay with you. And so Jesus tests that. Simon, do you love me more than these? And Simon simply replies, Lord, you know I love you. I'm not going to claim more than that. I'm not going to try and set myself up more than that. But yeah, you know I love you. And Jesus, in a sense, recommissions Peter to the leadership role that he'd called him to by saying three simple words, feed my sheep. And two more times that happens. And, and most scholars believe that the reason that the, that the thing happens three times that Jesus asks him the same question three times, and Peter responds three times, and three times Jesus commissions him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. 
is, is that Peter, uh, Jesus is basically restoring Peter, walking back through those three points of denial and, and giving him the opportunity to now declare his faith. And, and in this beautiful way, Jesus restores Peter to his leadership role. I mean, Peter's failed dismally. If Peter had then applied for a pastoral role in a church that next week after denying Jesus, every church in town would have turned him down. But Peter is restored beautifully by Jesus in this amazing chapter. And I can't help wondering whether 30 years later, as Peter's writing this letter that we've been journeying through called First Peter, whether that's the incident that he had in mind, this, this lakeside event by the Sea of Galilee where Jesus beautifully and graciously restored him to the ministry. Because the key way that Jesus does that and the the key um, metaphor that he uses is the idea of being a shepherd. Feed my sheep. And that's where Peter goes now as we continue the series we're in, in First Peter. If you've got a Bible with you, either a paper Bible or an app on your phone or whatever works best for you, I'd love you to come with me today to First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 1 to 4. We're in the, the last part of, of Peter's letter. We're going to finish it in the next couple of weeks. And uh, in this final part of the letter, Peter's kind of wrapping everything up. He started last week um, in this, the earlier section, chapter 4, verses 12 to 19, that we call Enduring Hardship. Um, and, and we know that he's kind of finishing up the letter because in, in verse 12, he uses this phrase, dear friends, which is his kind of marker that he's moving from one key section to the letter. His whole letter has been about um, living good lives for God. Because we are chosen and dearly loved by God, Peter has said, I want you to live great lives for God. I want you to live really well for him. And he's walked through this letter explaining all the different ways that we're to live good lives uh, for him as citizens and as our servants and as spouses and what that kind of lifestyle looks like. And as he's finished up the letter now, Peter has explained to his readers do you understand that by living this kind of way, you're actually going to come in for flat? You're going to be insulted and you're going to be ridiculed because you're foreigners and aliens. That's the way he's described his readers in this letter. You're kind of on the fringe. By following Jesus, you're kind of on the margins, really, of our society and our world. And that was very true of his original readers in the Roman Empire. I think that's equally now true for us in our modern world. By not following the crowd, by not um, engaging in the sin and supporting the kind of things that happen in our culture now, I think increasingly those who choose to follow Jesus are being marginalized and pushed to the edge of society. That's exactly where Peter's readers were. And Peter's saying, in spite of that, keep living good lives for God, but understand it's going to get hard. And so you need to endure and keep going. And so in verse 19 of chapter 4, he kind of wrapped up that, that section by saying, so then those who suffer according to God's will, which is what he was writing about, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. In other words, um, hardship is inevitable in life. We live in a fallen world, so we suffer generally. But if you particularly suffer because you're a follower of Jesus, if you're laughed at or insulted or mocked or persecuted or even put to death, Keep trusting God, keep doing good, he says. And then, in most of the manuscripts, but not all, there's a little word at the start of chapter 5, which says, therefore. It's not in all the manuscripts, and so some English translations have it and some don't. The NIV that I use doesn't have it. Other English translations do. If you're using a Bible, your um, first language is other than English. It may or may not appear in your particular translation. The NIV doesn't have it, but I think it probably should be there. I think it was original. Because what Peter's doing is saying, life is hard, following Jesus, there'll be hardship and difficulty, you'll be insulted and mocked, but keep calm, trust God, and elders, I appeal to you, shepherd the flock. So there's a sense in which Peter is now going to turn to the leaders of the church because he wants the leaders now to do a great job of caring for people in this time of hardship that we may face. That's kind of the link between one section to the next. So let's have a look at this passage. I just want to read it, and then we'll walk through it together. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, 
and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So Peter here is writing to the elders of these churches scattered all over um, Turkey, what we now call modern Turkey, to these Christians who were marginalized and pushed to the side. And he's writing to their church leaders that he calls elders. I've been reading in this past uh, few weeks a new book by one of my favorite authors. He's a pastor in San Diego uh, by the name of Larry Osborne. And uh, Larry Osborne has written a book on this particular section of First Peter uh, called Lead Like a Shepherd. And in that, he writes this about the, the elders that Peter was writing to. He says, we forget that the early church met primarily in homes and small homes at that. There were very few large churches. That means that almost every biblical passage addressed to New Testament leaders was written to folks leading the equivalent of a modern day overgrown small group. That's just how it was. They were in small homes. So actually, what these churches look like that Peter was writing to, they look more like the little congregation that we've started up in Hastings meeting in a lounge than this gathering at Botany meeting here in a school hall with 100 people or so. They were actually little, small environments. And so uh, what Larry Osborne says is that actually the principles of leadership that Peter is saying here isn't only applicable to those who are in an eldership role over a larger church. They're actually applicable to anyone who serves in a leadership role. He goes on and he, he says this, it doesn't matter if you're currently a small group leader or a Sunday school teacher or a church planter or a missionary or a mega church pastor. The key to leading others well spiritually is still the same, lead like a shepherd. And so today, I want to speak specifically to those of us who are in leadership. But I'm not only speaking to my fellow elders and staff members in this church. I am speaking to you, but I'm also speaking to you if you're a community group leader in our church. And I'm also speaking to you if you lead a ministry team in our church, or if you mentor others in our church. I'm also speaking to those of you who serve out in our kids' ministry and lead a little small group of kids in the forest and jungle, or teach our kids. And I'm speaking to those of you who are teenagers and young adults who lead our high school ministry. If you're in any kind of leadership role in our church, this passage is very applicable to you. And so I'm really praying that you listen up to what Peter says to you about the leadership role that you're in today. Now, this is also true, by the way, the principles Peter shares is also true if you're in a leadership role in the community. If you're leading in a business environment or a school environment, or in a team environment, if you're leading people, what Peter says to church leaders is equally applicable outside of the church and leadership as well. And so I'm speaking to all of us if we're in leadership roles or one day even aspire to be in leadership roles. We want to listen to what Peter's got to say. All right, he begins in verse 1 by laying out his credentials. Now, Peter is an apostle. That's how he introduces himself at the very beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 1. He's a hand-picked representative of Jesus Christ who was personally trained by Jesus for her three years before Jesus died and rose again. So he's like got some serious credentials. But at this point, he doesn't use them. He doesn't come in here with the full weight of his apostolic role. Instead, what he does is quite beautiful. He says, I appeal to you. I appeal to you as a fellow elder, and a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who shares will share in his glory. In other words, what Peter's doing is he's not standing over um, other, other leaders and saying, look, I'm an apostle, so I'm telling you to do this. Instead, he's coming alongside, and he's saying, I appeal to you. I'm an elder. I'm a leader just like you. I'm a fellow elder and a fellow sharer, and I think in the middle, a fellow witness to who Jesus is. He's trying to bring himself alongside these other leaders to encourage them to, uh, to the kind of leadership that he wants to explain to them. 
So that's how he begins it and appeals to them as a fellow leader in verse 1. And then he's got four key ideas in verses 2 to 4. And I want to walk through these one by one. I'm actually using Larry Osborne's um, outline for this because I was trying to play around with this passage while I'm reading his book, and then I realized actually the way he explains it is better than I could. So I've just flogged his stuff. So if Larry ever listens to my sermon, thank you, Larry. Um, I'm going with it. So the first thing that Peter says, and probably the most important one is this, care like a shepherd. If you are a leader of any way, shape, or form, what Peter wants you to do and wants me to do is care like a shepherd. That's what he says in verse 2 there. Be shepherds of God's flock that are under your care, watching over them. Now what Peter's doing is he is tapping into a rich vein of thought that's been running all the way through, or most of the way through, the Bible narrative up until now. We started our service, for example, by reading the famous words of Psalm 23 that describe Yahweh, the Lord God, as my shepherd, which is an incredibly intimate idea that God shepherds us. Uh, that psalm was written, of course, by King David, who was himself a shepherd before he became king. And even as king, he was described as the shepherd of Israel in some of the other psalms. Isaiah, one of the prophets, would predict that the coming Messiah would shepherd God's people. But in the Old Testament, probably the most famous description of leaders as shepherds comes from the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 34, we read these words. This is what the sovereign Yahweh, the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel. So he's speaking to the leaders, the elders of the nation of Israel. Woe to you who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? Of course, yes. And yet you eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the choice animals, but you don't take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak. You've not healed those who are ill. You've not bound up, bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays. You've not searched for the lost. You've ruled them instead harshly and brutally. And so they're scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. So Ezekiel uses this imagery of shepherding to condemn the leaders of the nation of Israel for not caring for people. And then a little further on in this beautiful prophecy, he makes an incredible prediction. Steve, it's this. This is God speaking through the prophet. I myself will tend my sheep and make them lie down, declares the sovereign Yahweh. I will search for the lost. I will bring back the strengths. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy because those animals were probably taking all the food from the wheat. I will shepherd the flock with justice. God was saying through his prophet that one day I will step into human history and I will personally lead and care for and protect and feed my people. Now, these are the words that are standing behind some famous words that we've already read in our service in the New Testament. Because 400 years after God speaks through Ezekiel. God steps onto human history through the, as the person of Jesus and says these remarkable words. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is standing up and announcing that he is the fulfillment of the Ezekiel 34 prophecy where Yahweh said, I will personally come and shepherd my people. And Jesus stands up and says, I'm here. I am the good shepherd that cares for the sheep. And there's this beautiful description in John chapter 10 about the way he cares for the sheep and he protects the sheep and he provides for the sheep and he loves the sheep. And then it's in the same gospel in chapter 21 where Jesus walks along the lakeside by Peter and restores him. And what does he say to Peter? Now you feed my sheep. You care for my lambs. The good shepherd takes the mantle of leadership as a shepherd and puts it around Peter's shoulders. And he takes his shepherd's staff and he gives it to Peter. 
message. Now you, Peter, and the other apostles, you care for my sheep. You feed my sheep. You protect my sheep. Peter now, 30 years later, is writing to these little house churches scattered all over northern Turkey. And he's saying to those leaders, wherever they were, however big or small the people were, the groups were that they were leading, now you be a shepherd. You feed, you protect, you care, you love. This is what leadership is all about as far as Jesus and Peter are concerned, that we care like a shepherd. In fact, this really is the big idea of this passage. Everything else that Peter's going to say is simply reinforcing this point. Good leaders are good shepherds. We talk about and define and discuss leadership in lots of many ways in our world today. Good leaders are those who cast great vision. Good leaders are those who influence people and pull everyone together around a common cause. Good leaders are people who courageously define reality and then talk about what could be. Good leaders are those who make things happen, not just talk about how things happen. Good leaders are those who pull teams together and and help people work together in unity. There's all these kinds of ideas, and all of those are good concepts about leadership. But at the heart of leadership, biblically, is this idea. Good leaders, first and foremost, are good shepherds. They are people who love and care for and protect and look after and get involved with those they lead. And that's what Peter's calling for based on what Jesus passed on to him. One of my favorite books about being a pastor in my library is written by a guy called Lynn Anderson, and it's called They Smell Like Sheep. And the the title for it comes from um, one paragraph in the book that is my favorite in the whole book. He writes this, Biblical shepherds are those who live among the sheep, serve the sheep, feed water and protect the sheep, touch and talk to the sheep, even lay down their lives for the sheep. Biblical shepherds, he says, smell like sheep. And I think he's exactly right. That's exactly what Peter's calling for. Elders and leaders of churches who are good elders and leaders, they smell like sheep because they're shepherds. Good small group leaders smell like sheep. Great youth group leaders smell like sheep. Great kids' leaders smell like sheep. Great mentors smell like sheep. And in fact, I would argue, great teachers in school smell like sheep. And great business leaders smell like sheep. And great team leaders or that lead crews in the building site smell like sheep. Because this is leadership, biblically. It's caring for people and protecting people and feeding people and walking with people through life. That's how Jesus does leadership, and that's how Peter did leadership, and that's how now what Peter is calling these leaders to do, and leaders like you and I to do as well. Good leaders, Peter says, are good shepherds. Everything else then is going to be built on this concept. But there's three other things that Peter wants us to understand. Firstly, we're to care like a shepherd, but secondly, We are to serve, if we're in leadership, we are to serve with enthusiasm. Serve with enthusiasm. In the rest of verse 2 and in verse 3, Peter does three couplets. He does these three phrases where it's not this, but this. He does that three times in in this next part of, of the letter. The first two couplets are basically going after why we lead. In other words, the motivation for that. So if you look in the, at the second half of verse 2, if you've still got your Bible there or your, your app on your phone, in the middle of, of verse 2, he says, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. That's the first couplet. Then the second one, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. So those first two couplets are about the why. What's the motivation for leadership? And what Peter is saying is that leaders not only care like a shepherd, but they serve with enthusiasm. And in these two couplets, Peter goes after two wrong motives that leaders can have. The first wrong motive is a sense of compulsion. 
Notice that he says in verse 2, not because you must. In other words, what he's saying is don't serve in a leadership role of whatever kind in the church because you feel like you have to. Don't lead in the kids' ministry because you have to. Don't, don't be a youth leader because, you know, I twisted your arm up behind your back or someone else did. Don't lead a community group just because someone put the pressure on that there's nowhere out, no one else, so it might as well be you. It's, it's the sense of don't serve as a leader simply because you feel like you have to. Instead, he says, because you're willing. I couldn't help thinking of the passage that Paul wrote about financial giving. It's an entirely different situation, but I think the words fit really well. Paul writing to the Corinthians said, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Talking about giving as an act of worship to God, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I think Peter's taking this kind of idea and applying it to leadership. Don't, don't be a leader under compulsion. Don't be a leader reluctantly because God loves a cheerful leader. In other words, if, if, if you're a kid's leader and you're going to go lead this little flock of kids and, and, and mentor them and share with them and care for them, and you're kind of going, good God, I hope these kids and I wish their parents would sort them out properly and get them to the, you know, Someone made me do this in 1976, but good night, I've hated it since 1978. God actually hates that. Honestly. What Peter's saying is if you are called as a leader, then care like a shepherd and serve enthusiastically. Serve cheerfully. Do this eagerly. Don't, don't have a sense of compulsion. And if you are serving in a leadership role, because you feel like you have to. And no one else will do it if you don't. And I got forced into this, and I, my heart's not really in it. Honestly, biblically, resign. Seriously. If the only reason we're leading is because we feel like we have to, then it's time to stop leading. It's time to get out. It's time to let someone else do it or let the thing fall over. Because if there's no joy in it and no willingness in it and no eagerness in it, then our motivation's completely wrong and we should stop. The second motivation Peter goes after is in that second couplet. So it's not only the motivation of under compulsion, but secondly, for financial gain. He says, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Now, this feels a little bit weird to us. It's kind of like, who on earth would serve for money? And he's particularly here talking to people like me. Um, very early on in the early church, um, certain leaders and elders in the church began to be paid so that they could derive an income so that they could devote themselves full-time to ministry. That's basically what I do. I'm one of the elders of the church I'm here, but I get paid so that I can devote all of my time to leadership and ministry. And so you lovely people, through your generous financial giving, um, support me and pay me and, and the other staff here. Now, what was happening in the early church, it seems, is that very quickly, false teachers started coming in and going, hey, this seems not a bad gig. Because in this world, uh, financial security and jobs that paid okay and gave you a sense, there, there weren't that many. Life was actually pretty tough and incomes were very low. And it seems as though false teachers began to realize that they could actually derive a reasonable level of regular income by jumping into this ministry thing, this paid pastoral thing. And so that's what they started to do. So you get these things like in Titus chapter 1, we're talking about these um, rebellious people, these false teachers who use uh, deception and meaningless talk. And Paul says they need to be silenced because they're disrupting whole households. But look at the last line. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. Or um, Peter himself would write about these false teachers who are secretly introducing destructive doctrines, even denying the person of Jesus. But look at what he says. In their greed, they exploit you with fabricated stories. So what was going on in this world is that people were doing it for the wrong motive. They were jumping in these false teachers in the ministry, thinking, hey, we can just try and get a little bit of money out of this while we peddle whatever we do. Now, in our world today, that isn't actually, doesn't actually happen that much. The, the reality is, 
that most pastors and most church staff who are paid are actually paid you know, less than probably what they'd earn in the marketplace. I think almost all of our church staff took a pay cut to come and join staff. That's just how it is. But what Peter's going after here, again, is wrong motives. In Peter's day, there were some leaders serving because they felt they had to. Others were coming in because it looked like a nice, steady income. Um, And Peter's saying, no, if you're going to serve and lead, then do so willingly, do so eagerly, because you want to serve with enthusiasm. I just want to stop here because I... I do want to acknowledge a group of leaders who may or may not be sitting listening to this this morning. Because sometimes in leadership, you get to a point where you're just worn out. That's not because you've got the wrong motive. It's not because you're you're under compulsion. You have served willingly and gladly in whatever leadership role you've had. But sometimes after giving out and giving out and giving out for so long, you just hit the point where you're just tired and there's not a lot left in the tank. And Peter's not going after you. Peter's going after people who are serving in leadership out of the sense of compulsion because they have to. Sometimes people, though, are in leadership because they want to and they've served eagerly and willingly. But at this point, the, the fuel light is on. And to those kind of people, the best thing to do is actually to stop and to take a season of time to step out of leadership and refuel before stepping back in again. You may have noticed in your bulletin this morning that Mel Palmer has just started a six-week sabbatical. We've actually deliberately built that into um, the the roles of our our pastoral team in this church. Um, The elders are the same. We have a, a term of eldership. And every uh, seventh year, elders step down and take a year break. We don't do that across other volunteer roles. But I do want to say that if you are a leader in our church in any sphere, in any place, and you've done that willingly and eagerly for the right motives, but you're at the point where you are tired and are worn out, there is nothing wrong with stepping back and taking time to rest and refuel and taking a break. And if you're needing that, for a kids ministry, if you're leading a community group, if you're a mentor and it's time for that, let us know. Because we want to be a church of grace and a place where you're able to do that and rest and refresh as you need to. All right, so Peter says to the leaders, care like a shepherd and serve with enthusiasm. And then thirdly, he says, lead by example. Lead by example. This is the third not but couplet. But whereas the first two were going after why you serve in terms of motivation, this one is going after how we serve in terms of the methodology. This is verse 3. Peter writes, not lording it, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, it's virtually unanimous among scholars here that Peter is referring back to some potent words of Jesus. When he says, not lording it over, he's going back to some very famous words that Jesus spoke about leadership. This is the version from uh, Matthew's gospel. Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, here it is, lord it over them. And there are high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you, he says. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. For just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for men. The irony of this passage from Matthew is it comes at a time when the 12 apostles were having an argument, and the argument was over which of them was the greatest, which of them was the most important, which of them was the most key to Jesus' plans. And this argument had been going on and on and on. It seems like it had been a standard conversation point whenever Jesus wasn't around. They'd start nudging each other and saying, I think I'm more important to Jesus than you are, you clown. But it had got to a point when we get to Matthew 20 that um, the debate had gone on and on, and finally two of them came up with a plan, James and John. 
So they were actually friends of Peter. They'd been fishing uh, business partners all together. But James and, Con, uh, James and John came up with this really cool plan. They went to Jesus with their mum. So they got Mrs. Zebedee along, and they got their mum to talk to Jesus. And so she comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, would you do something for me? Hoping Jesus would just say yes and sign the blank check. And Jesus says, um, what is it you want before I sign that? And Mrs. Zebedee says, I'd like you to give my two boys, who are so lovely, I'd like you to give my two boys the two key roles in your kingdom when you set it up in all its fullness. So like, when you're the king, would you make like James the prime minister and John the deputy prime minister? And Jesus says, you have no idea what you are asking, do you? And then later on, it says the other 10 found out. And it says in Matthew 20, quote, they were indignant. They were really mad. They were mad that James and John had gotten ahead of them to make that request. And they were mad that they didn't think about bringing mum along, to get mum to talk to Jesus about getting them the best seats. And it's in that context that Jesus turns around and says, no, 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 no. You've completely misunderstood leadership. It's not about lording it over everyone else. It's not about celebrating how many people report to you or how big the group is that listens to you. It's not about trying to look powerful and big and like you've got it all together. It's about being a servant. It's about laying your life down. That's leadership. And the irony is the disciples still didn't get it because John tells us the night that Jesus will be betrayed at the Last Supper, when he kneels down and washes their feet in John 13. He does it, John tells us, because the disciples were still arguing even that night over who was the greatest. But somewhere along the line after that, Peter did get it. Because Peter now is referencing back to this comment from Jesus. And he says now to leaders of these little churches, all through modern Turkey. He says, don't lord it over people. That isn't, that isn't shepherding leadership. To be a shepherd leader is to care for the sheep and to love the sheep and to feed the sheep and protect the sheep. And if you have to, lay down your life for the sheep. So he says, not lording it over. But he says, being examples to the flock. This is a consistent call all the way through the Bible. Time and time again, Paul writing to Titus and everything set them an example. To Corinth, follow my example, he says, as I follow the example of Christ. Time and time again, the Bible declares that, that leaders who, who lead others are to be examples to them. And we kind of squirm with this, most of us, when we're in leadership. Partly because we've got a Kiwi mindset, which is, oh, good night. I don't want to be that. I'm, I'm no good. I don't want to set myself up as some great example to follow. But some of it's because we quite naturally know our own weaknesses and our own mess-ups. You know, we're much more familiar with the areas of life where we're not doing well and we don't want anyone to follow than we actually are with maybe the areas of our life where we do set a good example. But this is what Peter says. Don't lord it over people. Don't, don't bark orders out to people. Lead by example. And what he's doing is he's actually taking them back to the way that shepherds worked in biblical times. I remember uh, growing up as a kid in the 70s, we would watch a dog show on Sunday night. How many of you remember a dog show? Some of you older ones. There you go. Crumpets with golden syrup, sitting down watching the dog show and trying to get those three little sheep into, you know, through the gate or into the pen and one of them would stamp their feet and I remember mum would always crack up when the sheep would stamp its feet at the dog. But that's a completely different form of farming sheep than the way that they did it in Jesus' time. Nowadays, a sheep farmer in New Zealand, um, they basically jump on their quad bike and they get their dogs out and they kind of herd the sheep up and drive them wherever they're taking them. That's completely different to how a biblical shepherd would do it. In Bible times, what the disciples would have seen, what Jesus would have been very familiar with, is a shepherd who simply walked along the paths and called to the sheep 
and the sheep would just follow the shepherd and the voice of the shepherd. In other words, in biblical times, a shepherd led from the front. Whereas in our day, a sheep farmer drives from behind. And what Peter is saying to leaders is don't drive from behind. Don't lord it over. Set an example. Be a shepherd who leads from the front. I was reading actually this week a story about um, President Eisenhower, who was a general in the US Army, led the D-Day landings and was in charge of the whole war in Europe that defeated Hitler and then became president of the US. And he was very committed to the concept of shepherding or servant leadership. And sometimes when he felt like some of his uh, generals or his army staff were doing too much lording it over and not enough leading by example, he would place a piece of string on the table in front of him. And Eisenhower would just look at the particular person who he felt was not really leading by example the way he needed to. And he said, if I want to get that piece of string across this table, how, do you think I, how well do you think it would go by pushing the piece of string? He said, go ahead, grab one end of that string. Now push it across the table. What happens? And of course, it all bunches up and squirms and looks weird or whatever. And he says, so what would happen if you grab that end and pull instead? And Eisenhower would say, it doesn't work for leaders to push and prod and shove. What works is for leaders to go in front and lead and pull others along. It's exactly what Peter is saying here and exactly what Jesus lived. If you're a leader in the youth group, if you're a leader of a community group, if you're a leader in the business world, it's not about exercising leadership and barking out orders and commanding people to do stuff. It's about leading by example. Leading as a shepherd so that people follow, knowing that we care, knowing that we love them, knowing that we're leading them where they need to go. So care as a shepherd, serve with enthusiasm, lead by example. And then finally, Peter writes, take the long view. Take the long view. This is verse 4. Peter says, and when the good, sorry, when the ch chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Peter's a realist. What he understands is that leadership is tough. It's hard being a leader. There are times when you're worn out. There are times when you're frustrated. When you're times you're annoyed because you're a shepherd and they are sheep. And it's no surprise that the Bible uses sheep as the metaphor to describe you and me. Because sheep are dumb. Sorry. And sometimes as a leader, as a shepherd, you're just shattered, exhausted. And Peter writes to these kinds of leaders and says, take the long view. Because there's a day coming when the chief shepherd will appear again. And you know what? It'll be worth it that day. Larry Osborne, again, writing in this beautiful book on shepherding, says whenever we hit the wall and start to ask, is this worth it? We need to step back and make sure we're asking the question from an eternal and not an earthly perspective. Because in the short run, from an earthly perspective, the answer is often no, it's not worth it. I had lunch this past week with one of the elders in our church. And frankly, he's pretty wasted. If he and I had sat there together in a cafe across the table and looked at each other and said, is it worth it? From an earthly point of view, short term, is this worth it? And we both, both of us would have probably said, nah. But the way to understand the worth of this is to take a long view. Is this worth it? Is this going to be worth it one day as a, as a leader in a youth ministry, as a leader of kids, a, a shepherd of a community group, as a mentor, young marrieds? Is it going to be worth it one day when the chief shepherd returns and stands in front of you with nail-pierced hands and looks you in the eye and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Is it going to be worth it then Two writers. 
Peter says, take the long view. I know it's exhausting. I know it's tiring. Take the long view. And he's been saying that through this letter consistently. He's continually been lifting the eyes of his readers to the end of the story. Reminding them this is this life is a blip on this long eternal rope of eternity. This this is all about the the, the hope that we have, the inheritance that will never uh, fail or spoil. It's all about the long view. And now he writes to shepherds and leaders who maybe are tired, who maybe are discouraged, who maybe are frustrated. And says, keep going. Because one day, the chief shepherd will return. And it will be worth it in the end. By the way, I love that description of Jesus. The chief shepherd. See, Peter's already described Jesus back in chapter 2 as the shepherd of our souls. But now, Peter's writing to other leaders other elders, and reminding them that that they are shepherds, and now he comes and says, but he is the the chief shepherd. Because at the end of the day, we're actually all serving under him. And I love the way that Peter, through this little portion of his letter, subtly reminds us that it's actually not about us. It doesn't matter what kind of leadership role you have. It doesn't matter what kind of leader you are. In the end, this is not your flock. Back in verse 2, I don't know if you noticed. But he said, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care. Or in verse 3, don't lord it over those entrusted to you. See, at the end of the day, you don't own the flock. They're not your sheep, they're his. This is not my church. This is Jesus' church. He's the senior pastor. He's the chief shepherd. Whatever shepherding or leadership role we may have, if you're a youth leader, it's his youth group. You lead a community group in your lounge, it's Jesus' community group. Those are his sheep. And we are simply caring for the sheep that he has given into our care for him. And that means, as far as Peter's concerned, good leaders are good shepherds who follow the good shepherd. Good leaders are good shepherds who follow the good And that doesn't just mean that we follow his example. That means we follow him. Because your leadership of that community group will never be better than the quality of your walk and relationship with the chief shepherd. Your work as an elder will never be any better than the quality of your walk with the chief shepherd. My ministry as a pastor here will never go beyond my walk with Jesus as my shepherd. And so ultimately, for those of us who hold any leadership role in this church, it comes back to how we're walking with him. I want to finish this morning by praying for us. And I especially want to pray for the leaders of our church. And so... I'm going to actually ask you, if you're in leadership, to stand today. So if you are an elder, elder couple, or on paid staff, would you please stand? If you're a community group leader, would you please stand? Or a community group shepherd, would you stand? If you're a mentor, a marriage mentor in our church, would you please stand? you're a some, come on, I know you're already here. Thank you. Why don't Charlotte? There's leadership. If you are a youth leader, one of the teenagers or young adults leading our altar high school ministry, would you please stand? 
If you're a leader in our kids' ministry, either a large group teacher or a small group leader for kids, would you please stand? If you lead a ministry team in some shape or form, would you please stand? Because you are shepherds. And today I especially want to pray for you. Would you stay standing while I pray? God, I want to say thank you for these men and women today. Thank you that they have been willing to pick up the shepherd's crop and to lead. Lead small groups or lead large groups, it doesn't matter. Because you've given us these roles. Thank you for this beautiful picture, Lord, of what it means to lead. To be a shepherd who cares and protects and guides and feeds and even lays down their life for the sheep. And I know all of us standing today feel a deep sense of inadequacy to this. We don't feel up to this and we don't feel worthy of it. We know all of the ways in which our lives don't measure up and we don't feel like we're great examples. Lord, some here standing today may feel worn out and tired. I want to commit each of them to your care. God, would you sustain them and strengthen them? Would you help us to lead your flock well? God, forgive us for times when we haven't cared like a sheep when we fail to do the kind of job you would want us to do. But I pray today that you would empower us by your spirit to love and to care and to feed and protect the flock that you have given us. Thank you for these men and women today. I commit them to your grace. In the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. That's our service, folks. Thank you for being with us today. Hope you have a wonderful week. Enjoy the sunshine. Daylight saving is here. So you have extra time tonight to go for a walk after dinner if you want. Have a great week, though. Thanks for being with us. If you'd like prayer, we'll have some shepherds at the front who would love to pray with you. Thanks.